0: Assalamualaikum. alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-2, Serbs and Ottomans. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum begins to disintegrate into several smaller states called Baliks. One of these beyliks, called the Osmanli beylik, begins expanding westward and growing rapidly. The Byzantine Empire hires the Osmanlis to help them fight against their enemies. The Osmanlis use this opportunity to begin their own expansion into Europe. And with that, let's discuss Sultan Murad I. Sultan Murad Murad became the Ottoman Sultan in 1362 after the death of his father Orhan. Murad began his reign by consolidating and strengthening his territories in Anatolia home base for the growing Ottoman Beylik. This was critical as he needed soldiers from Anatolia to fuel future conquests into Europe. For now, Gallipoli served as the Ottoman European headquarters. This was not ideal since the Ottomans did not possess a strong navy. The more powerful European fleets could easily blockade the crossing between Anatolia and Europe. But for one reason or another, the Europeans never came together to make this happen. Sultan Murad used this opportunity to strengthen the Ottoman navy and forge alliances with several European states. Ottoman Expansion into Europe The Black Plague struck Constantinople in 1346. Already weakened by years of warfare and internal fighting, Constantinople lost nearly half its population to plague. The Ottomans capitalized on this strategy, expanding deep into Thrace. They moved their headquarters from Gallipoli to Edirne. From there, The Ottomans meticulously executed their plans of conquest. From Edirne, they first pushed northeast, consolidating their territory in Thrace. Then they went northwest towards Bulgaria. Finally, they moved west, straight into Macedonia and Greece. The Ottomans followed a simple formula when conquering a town. They'd begin by attacking the countryside, reducing food supply to the town and putting its occupants on edge. Then, they'd build a fort in the ravaged countryside and use that as a forward base to complete their conquest of the area. And while the Ottomans were brutal on the battlefield, they were fairly easygoing with the territory and people they conquered. Once they conquered the town, they'd go about rebuilding and repopulating it. And as strange as it may sound, they were often welcomed by the people they subjugated. Catholics living under Orthodox rulers welcomed the Muslim Ottomans. The Ottomans did not care which sect they belonged to so long as they paid their taxes and did not cause trouble. The same was true for Orthodox Christians living under Catholic rule. Again, the Ottomans did not care so long as they paid their taxes and did not cause trouble. And the same for Christians who were considered heretics by the Catholics and the Orthodox. The Ottomans did not care so long as they paid their taxes and did not cause trouble and the taxes in this early stage of the Ottoman Empire were very light in comparison to other regimes. In later centuries, as the Osmanli family and Ottoman nobles and bureaucracy grew and festered, taxes would skyrocket to support their lavish lifestyles. Like any society, there was a class structure in the Ottoman Beylik. The various groups within the Ottoman territories were divided by both legal and and social boundaries. The primary divide was between Muslim and non-Muslim. The Ottomans generally ruled by Islamic law, which put Muslims at the top of society. There was also a divide between military and civilian. These classes were further divided along religious lines. Low-ranking Christian warriors were allowed to keep their lands and titles without accepting Islam. The only caveat was that they had to use their resources to support the Ottomans. High-ranking Christian warriors were treated differently. These were often powerful nobles who commanded large fortunes and large armies. They were a potential threat and could not be allowed to live freely within the Ottoman state. If they did not accept Islam, these European nobles had to either accept life at a lower class or move to a Christian land. Most of the Christian warriors who remained under Ottoman authority wound up accepting Islam within a few generations. Warfare was not the only tool the Ottomans used to conquer territory. Sometimes they purchased castles from European nobles who did not have the staff and soldiers to properly maintain them. And whoever controlled a castle controlled the land surrounding it. The Ottomans also acquired territory through marriage. It was not uncommon for Ottoman royalty to marry the daughters of Christian nobles, thereby forging mutually beneficial alliances. The Ottomans seemed nearly unstoppable during this early period of European expansion. They considered Europe to be frontier territory and that it was their destiny to conquer all of it. And who could blame them for thinking like this? The Ottomans were the most disciplined military force of its time and easily swept aside most of their opponents. However, most of their opponents during this period were small states. The Ottomans were stacking up victories against vastly inferior enemies. They had yet to face a large, organized European army. That would soon change as the Ottomans consolidated their hold on Thrace and moved into the Balkans. The Balkans The Balkans is a very diverse region with many different ethnic groups and religions. The ethnic groups in the Balkans include Bosnians, Bulgarians, Serbs, Hungarians, Macedonians, Croats, Slovenes, Dalmatians, Albanians, Greeks, and Vlachs. The Vlachs were the ancestors of modern Romanians. There were also pockets of Germanic people in a group called the Zips, mostly found in Slovakia. As for religion, the west and northern parts of the Balkans were mostly Catholic, while the south and east were mostly Orthodox. Bosnia, stuck somewhere in the middle, was an outlier. Pre-Islamic Bosnians belonged to a dualistic Christian sect considered heretical by mainstream Christianity. At the beginning of the 11th century, most of the Balkans was part of the Byzantine Empire. But as the Byzantines weakened, they lost more and more territory in the Balkans. First, Romania came under Hungarian rule in the early 1000s. A century later, Serbia broke off to become an independent state. Another century passed, and Bulgaria became independent also. And with the Fourth Crusade and the conquest of Constantinople in 1204, the entire region capsized and fell apart. As the Byzantine Empire collapsed, the Balkan people turned elsewhere for inspiration and culture. They soon began adopting Western and Central European culture and military practices. Croatia and Bosnia are perfect examples of this. Croatia, which became part of the Hungarian kingdom, adopted Hungarian battle tactics. Bosnia, being closer to the coast and closer to Italy, was more influenced by Western Europe. The Rise and Fall of the Serbian Empire Bosnians, Croats, and Serbs are all considered Slavic people. Of the three, the Serbs have usually been the most populous and strongest group in the region. The Serbs broke free from Byzantine rule in 1172 and became an independent state. They defeated Bulgaria at the Battle of Hustendil in 1330, becoming a significant power in the Balkans. Twenty years before the Ottomans stepped foot in Europe, the Serbian kingdom was already expanding southwards. Stefan Dushan became king of Serbia in 1331 and oversaw much of this growth. Perhaps the greatest Serbian monarch to ever live, Serbian culture, influence, and military strength reached its peak during his reign. One of the most important accomplishments by King Stefan was the establishment of the Serbian Orthodox Church based in what is now Kosovo. Though he made sure to stay away from Hungarian territory to the north, King Stefan Duchenne expanded south into Albania. He faced little resistance from the locals. After decades of Byzantine civil war and decay, most of the Albanians were grateful for strong leadership. The Serbian Empire grew to include Bosnia and Herzegovina, Macedonia, and parts of northern Greece. Bosnia, which had been independent for about 150 years, first fell to the Hungarians, broke free, only to fall immediately afterwards to the Serbs. King Stefan, hoping to fill the power vacuum left by the Byzantines, took on elaborate titles. He soon began referring to himself as Emperor of the Serbs, Greeks, Bulgarians, and Albanians. Like most European monarchs, King Stefan Duchenne was concerned about Ottoman expansion into the Balkans. Stopping the Ottomans was the primary motivating factor behind Serbian expansion. But when King Stefan died suddenly in 1355, the dreams of a Serbian-Balkan empire died with him. His son, Stefan Juros, succeeded him but was not nearly as capable. Stefan Euros could not handle the greedy Serbian nobles and aristocrats like his father did. Before long, the once ambitious Serbian empire fractured into multiple smaller, bickering states. This just made it easier for them to be swallowed up by either the Hungarians or the Ottomans. The Battle of Kosovo, 1389 By the late 1300s, the Ottomans were pushing up against the remnants of the Serbian Empire. The Serbs responded by attacking the Ottoman capital, Edirne, in 1371 at the Battle of Maritsa. Initially, the Serbian attack was successful. However, an Ottoman counterattack reversed their gains and nearly destroyed what remained of Serbia's military. The Serbian king, members of the royal family, and several high-ranking nobles were killed. The Serbian empire, which was already falling apart, was now fractured beyond repair. The Serbian vassals that survived the battle pledged fealty to Sultan Murad. But a few years later, some of these Christian vassals rebelled against the Ottomans. Prince Lazar of Moravian Serbia was the leader of this rebellion. Prince Lazar built an alliance of disgruntled Ottoman vassals and Balkan warlords. Together, they reversed some of the Ottoman gains in southern Serbia. This Serbian alliance also included the Knights Hospitallers and the Kingdom of Bosnia. With everyone focused on the Ottomans, Bosnia had become briefly independent during the 1380s. All told, the Serbian alliance numbered about 30,000 soldiers. Sultan Murad and his two sons, Bayezid and Yakou, led an army of 50,000 troops to retake the lost territory and destroy Prince Lazar's alliance. The two armies met in June 1389 at a location called the Fields of the Blackbird or Kosovo Polje in Serbian. The battle began and despite their smaller numbers, the Serbian alliance did fairly well in the early stages. They pushed the Ottoman left flank back, applying significant pressure on the Ottoman right and center. And then suddenly, Vuk Brankovic, the Bosnian commander of the Serbian right flank, abandoned the field taking his men with him. There have since been many explanations for the Bosnian defection. Some say he made a secret deal with the Ottomans to betray the Serbs. Others say, despite the early gains, he did not think it was possible to beat the Ottomans. Hence, he fled the battle to save as many of his troops as possible. Whatever his reason, it turned the tide of battle. The Ottoman left flank rallied and attacked the Serbian center. This created overwhelming pressure on the Serbian lines, forcing them to fall apart and leading to a rout. With victory near at hand, Sultan Murad sent the bulk of his forces forward to finish off the Serbs. Unfortunately for the Sultan, this left him vulnerable. A group of Serbian warriors fought their way through his diminished rear guard and killed him. The death of Sultan Murad did not change the battlefield situation. The Ottomans went on to crush the Serbian forces, killing Prince Lazar along the way. This battle forever created animosity between Serbs and Ottomans and Serbs and Bosnians. The Serbs, who were Orthodox Christians, now viewed the Bosnians as heretics who abandoned them in their time of need. Having won the Battle of Kosovo and destroyed the Serbian alliance, the Ottomans regained vital territory in the Balkans. But their challenges were not over yet. Their victory at Kosovo increased fears in Western Europe, leading to yet another crusade. The Nicopolis Crusade, Part 1 The Christian monarchs of Western Europe had every reason to be afraid. The Ottomans were nearly unstoppable. They established a foothold in Bulgaria and were threatening Hungary. They blockaded Constantinople, trapping the Byzantines in their own city, rendering them nearly useless. And they defeated the Serbian alliance at the Battle of Kosovo. The Battle of Kosovo had been the best chance for the local Christians to stop the Ottomans. That Prince Lazar convinced so many groups to set aside their differences and unite against the Ottomans was an accomplishment of its own. However, There was just too much bad blood between the Catholics and the Orthodox for them to remain united. The Ottomans were nearly unstoppable, but they were not entirely unstoppable. They did lose some key battles that stalled their steady progress, and they were not yet able to penetrate into Bosnia. But in the grand scheme of things, Bosnia was not very important to the Ottomans. They were more concerned with the major Balkan states such as Hungary and Serbia. And now that Serbia had been humbled at the Battle of Kosovo, Hungary became the biggest threat to the Ottomans. After his death, Murad's son, Bayezid, became the new Ottoman sultan. He used Serbia, which was now his vassal, as a buffer against the Hungarians. Hungary had emerged as one of the strongest local powers and at one point had ruled over Croatia, Dalmatia, and parts of Serbia. Hungary claimed rule over Bosnia as well, but this claim was nominal at best and Bosnia generally ignored it. And since the Serbs were Orthodox and the Hungarians were Catholic, Sultan Bayezid knew it was unlikely they'd unite against him. Bayezid took three years after the Battle of Kosovo to strengthen his position in the Balkans and eliminate his rivals. Once that was done, he began assembling one of the biggest armies the Balkans had ever seen. King Sigismund was the king of Hungary, the king of Germany, the king of Italy, the king of Bohemia, and the Holy Roman Emperor, though he was neither holy nor Roman. But he was afraid. He was afraid of the Ottomans who just kept pushing deeper and deeper into Europe. The Serbian alliance at the Battle of Kosovo did not stop the Ottomans. Now, it was up to King Sigismund to figure something out. In 1392, he sent ambassadors west to plead for help from the European kingdoms. Around the same time, the Byzantine emperor, Manuel II, had come to the same conclusion. In 1395, he also sent ambassadors seeking support from the Catholics in the West. The Ottomans had bullied the Byzantines into becoming their vassals. But now, the Byzantines and the Hungarians signed a joint crusading alliance in February 1396. And when he received favorable responses from Genoa and France, Emperor Manuel felt bold enough to declare his independence. And the Ottomans promptly put him under siege. Meanwhile, the Hungarian ambassadors returned with promises of support from France, Venice, England, and several Germanic kingdoms. In addition to the Christian monarchs, the Knights Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights of Prussia, and even two rival popes all promised to come together and fight the Ottomans. Interestingly, Even though the Venetians agreed to this new crusade, they secretly tried to negotiate a peace deal between the parties. The Venetians understood that war was bad for business. Ottoman Preparations The Ottomans had several competent, experienced warriors at their disposal for the upcoming crusade. One of their best commanders was a man named Ghazi Evrenos Bey. Possibly of Greek or Byzantine origin, his family had allied with a Turkish Beylik in the early 1300s. The family accepted Islam and Ghazi Evrenos joined the Ottoman military. He soon made a name for himself, becoming one of the most successful Ottoman commanders of the 1350s. Ghazi Ivrenno served under five different sultans during his long and illustrious career. He fought in most of the major battles in both Anatolia and the Balkans. He soon became an Ukbe, leading the Ottoman push westwards into Macedonia and Greece. An Ukbe was a special class of warrior in the early Ottoman period who ruled over a specific territory with little oversight from the sultan. Besides being a great warrior, Ghazi Evrenos was also a pious Muslim. During his lifetime, he built several mosques, Islamic schools, boarding houses for the poor, Sufi lodges, and public baths. Another famous warrior was Ali Pasha Kandarli Zaid, who was also an Islamic scholar. His father had been a Qadi, or judge, while his mother was the daughter of a Qadi. Likewise, Ali Pasha Kandarli had also served as a Qadi for a time. Ali Pasha Kandarli's military career was not as spectacular as Ghazi Evrenos, but he still had several battlefield successes under his belt. He had commanded Ottoman troops in the Balkans. Anatolia, and during the Battle of Kosovo in 1389. Historically speaking, however, Ali Pasha Kandarli is more known for his Islamic works than his military career. When Sultan Bayezid learned about the upcoming crusade, he began educating himself on Western European battle tactics and techniques. The Muslims of the Middle East had been studying European fighting style since the First Crusade in 1099. There were entire volumes available in Syria and Egypt for the Ottomans to utilize. Sultan Bayezid also maintained a vibrant intelligence network throughout Christian-controlled Romania and Hungary. As the Crusaders began arriving in the spring and summer of 1396, he remained well informed of their movements and positions. The Crusaders Arrive Meanwhile, the crusaders could not seem to agree on a plan. King Sigismund of Hungary wanted to focus on Bulgaria and stop the Ottoman advance into the Balkans. However, it is not clear if he communicated his desire with the other European factions. The European nobles from France and Burgundy became the de facto leaders of the crusade. Burgundy is currently a district in eastern France, But at the time, it was an independent kingdom. The Hungarians also disagreed with the French and Burgundians on the best plan of attack. King Sigismund wanted to march through the Carpathian mountains of Romania. This would force the rulers of Transylvania and Wallachia to join the crusade. However, the French and the Burgundians were worried about getting bogged down in the mountains. They preferred to use the Danube River as the fastest mode of transportation. The Western Europeans also had a fleet of ships stationed in the Black Sea. The Danube River connected to the Black Sea, so these ships were available to provide additional support. Ultimately, the Western Europeans used the river while the Hungarians went through the mountains. The Crusaders agreed to meet up at Nikopol, a town on the Danube River in northern Bulgaria. When Bayezid's spies informed him of these plans, he ordered the Ottoman garrison at Nicopol to fight to the last man. Meanwhile, he began preparing for the arrival of the crusaders. Seventy ships full of crusaders sailed east on the Danube River from Vienna to Budapest, Hungary. By July 1396, the main body of the crusader army had arrived in Hungary. The Crusader forces totaled about 16,000 troops, while the Ottoman forces, including their vassals, were somewhere between ten to 15,000. The first point of contact came at Vidin in northwestern Bulgaria. The Christian ruler of this town was an Ottoman vassal, but he offered no resistance to the Crusaders. Perhaps he did not have the strength to fight them, or perhaps he did not want to die for the Ottomans. Whatever his intention, the crusaders made quick work of the Ottoman garrison, slaughtering them to a man. The crusaders continued east before coming to the town of Oryehovo in North Bulgaria. Unlike Vidin, Oryehovo was not a vassal but directly ruled by the Ottomans. Hence, it had a much stronger garrison and better defenses. The Ottoman garrison at Oryehovo fended off multiple attacks from the crusaders. However, the main Hungarian force soon arrived and joined up with the Franco-Burgundians. This gave the Crusaders a decided advantage. The Ottoman garrison offered to surrender, but the Crusaders rejected it. With their superior numbers, the Crusaders overwhelmed the garrison, scaled the walls, and entered the city. The result was a massacre. The Crusaders killed nearly the entire town. Muslim and Christian, women and children. They did spare some of the wealthier nobility of the town, taking many of them hostage in the hopes of large ransoms. The crusader army continued east, where they finally met up with the crusader fleet at Nicopol in September 1396. The crusaders immediately launched a blistering attack against Nicopol. The Crusaders did not have effective siege machinery, so they were forced to attempt scaling and mining the walls. Their ships guarded the river, on the lookout for Ottoman reinforcements. Nikopol's garrison was commanded by an experienced Ottoman warrior named Dogan Bey. He had heard about what the Crusaders did at Vidin and Oriohovo and was determined to fight to the death. The strong Ottoman defense convinced the crusaders they were not going to take Nicopol by force. So they decided to put the city under siege and starve it to death. The siege lasted for about 14 days. During this time, animosity took hold within the crusader ranks. Many of the crusader troops were from Wallachia or Constantinople and were Orthodox Christians. They bristled at the mistreatment of local Orthodox by the Western Catholics. This also turned the local Orthodox civilians against the Crusaders. The Christian townsfolk secretly provided the Ottoman garrison with food and intel on the Crusader movements. Sultan Bayezid's response. Sultan Bayezid's spies also kept him informed of the Crusader movements. While the Crusaders were still in Hungary, he put Constantinople under siege as punishment for Emperor Manuel's rebellion. Ottoman Sultans, at this time, were expected to accompany their soldiers into battle. Hence, Sultan Bayezid was on location with the strongest part of his army during the siege. When he learned the Crusaders had crossed the Danube River into Ottoman territory, he lifted the siege and headed north for Bulgaria. Crusader ships blockaded the Dardanelles, so there was no way to bring in more troops from Anatolia. This is where Bayezid's intelligence network paid off. By the time the Crusader fleet had arrived at the Dardanelles, Ghazi of Renos had already crossed over with thousands of troops and was on his way to join the Sultan. Bayezid also sent word to his Serb vassals under the command of Prince Stefan Lazarevich. The sultan ordered all of his available troops to meet first at Edirne in Thrace and then at Plovdiv in south-central Bulgaria. He wanted to organize this large army to ensure a coordinated battle against the crusaders. With his defensive plans put together, Sultan Bayezid led the army towards Nicopol. In the next episode, we will continue our discussion on the Nicopol Crusade. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Asalaamu alaykum. Welcome back to the Umayyad Caliphate on Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host Mutaki Ismail and this is episode 2. In the previous episode, we discussed the history of the Islamic Caliphate and its progression from the time of Abu Bakr to the death of Ibn Zubair. In this episode, we are going to lay the groundwork for this new united caliphate that the new caliph, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, is ruling over. But first, let's take a look at the situation in the Muslim world. With ibn Zubair defeated and Abdul Malik as the new caliph, the Muslim world is no longer engulfed in warfare. The western provinces of the Islamic Caliphate, which is now the Umayyad Caliphate, that is, the Hijaz, Syria, Egypt, and North Africa, these are the western provinces, these were all relatively peaceful. Abdul Malik continued his his predecessor, Muawiyah, Continue the practice of annually attacking the Byzantines of Constantinople, Anatolia, and northern Syria, because ultimately that's where the Islamic Caliphate wanted to exp- wanted to expand. However, while things were fairly peaceful and easy in the western provinces, things were much different in the eastern provinces. The eastern provinces included Iraq, Persia. Khorasan, and Sijistan. Sijistan is modern Sistan in southeastern Iran near the Pakistani border. Within this region, within these eastern provinces, there were several anti-Umayyad elements, particularly in Iraq and also in Persia, and this gave rise to even more Khawarij uprisings. The Khawadij, of course, were a problem for Ibn Zubayr during his time that he ruled Iraq and parts of Iran, as well as as Ali ibn Abi Talib when he ruled over Iraq and Iran. One of the primary and most pernicious groups of Khawadij were a group known as the Azadika or the Azraqi Khawarij. They were still a big problem in Khuzestan, which is in Iran but near the Iraqi border, and Fars, which is also in Iran near the Persian Gulf. These Azadika or Azraki Khawarij, I might go back and forth between their names, they were first discussed in the Ibn Zubair series, Episode 5. Meanwhile, in Khorasan, and we'll discuss Khorasan in more depth, the expansion of the Islamic Caliphate has suddenly come to a halt, mostly because of tribal infighting within the Arab armies that had created major divisions. We will discuss that soon. But before we do all that, let's look at the, I won't say the star of the show, but one of the main characters during this period Hajjaj ibn Yusuf Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was born in Ta'if around 40 A.H. and he belonged to the Thaqif tribe. After the Thaqif and Ta'if had become Muslim, the Thaqif eventually became tightly aligned with the Umayyads. One of the first from among the Thaqif to align themselves with the Umayyads was the companion named Mughirah ibn Sha'bah. So the Thaqif have a close relationship with the Umayyads. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf continued this tradition by becoming a member of Abdul Malik's Shurta or his police force. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was so impressive in his role as a police enforcer for Abdul Malik that Abdul Malik ultimately made him a military commander. And we first mention Hajjaj ibn Yusuf in the Ibn's... In the 10th episode of the Ibn Zubair series. During that episode, we discussed how Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and his father shared a camel as they fled the Umayyad defeat in Medina when Ibn Zubair ultimately captured that city from the Umayyads. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was also with Abdul Malik when the Umayyads finally defeated Musab ibn Zubair at Kufa, thereby taking Iraq from Ibn Zubair.